This episode of Checkered Flag Chat is dedicated to the memory of Michelle McDornan. Michelle was the wife of Gerald McDornan, who appeared as a guest on a previous episode of the podcast, and she tragically lost her life on Sunday the 14th of June. We extend our deepest sympathies and condolences to Gerald, to he and Michelle's children, Ebony and Will, and Michelle's family and friends at this difficult time. Hi, I'm Lockie Mansell. Welcome to Checkered Flag Chat. On this episode, our guest is someone who's done a bit of everything. Garth Walden has raced V8 supercars in the main game, including a start in the Bathurst 1000. He's also raced production and improved production cars, GT cars, Porsches, Radicals, sports sedans, LMP3 cars, and he's won the World Time Attack Challenge three times. These days, Garth has kept busy managing his large-scale GWR Australia operation, which runs more than 35 cars across a widespread array of motorsport categories. In the podcast, Garth talks about his progression from humble mechanic to race driver and team owner. A particular highlight of our chat is where we delve into the original Team Sydney concept, a stillborn V8 supercar team that almost, but not quite, made the grid in 2008. Garth also takes us on a tour of the GWR Australia workshop. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our checkered flag chat with Garth Walden. So uh, I'm actually pretty excited to be recording this podcast because it's the first one that I've recorded on site since we went into lockdown with COVID-19. So good to be here at GWR's global headquarters and it's actually a really impressive facility and we'll do a tour through it a bit later on. But before we get to that stage, I want to talk to Garth about your introduction into motorsport. And it started back when you were really just a kid in the late 1990s with your dad, Brian, racing a Tirana sports sedan, I believe it was. Yeah, that's correct, Lockie. Um, I think I was... I actually started uh, at Mount Panorama when I was about 15 into cars doing hill climbs and super sprints um, in HQ Holden or my dad's uh, VL sports sedan uh, Commodore, and, um, which I was helped out by um, Brian Nightingale from Bathurst. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I turned 16, obviously, and uh, decided to go circuit racing. I could get my licence to go circuit racing, and Dad was going to put me in his um, V8 Commodore Sports sedan, and um, our good family friend, Barry Jemison, actually, uh, turned around to my dad and said, you're bloody crazy. Don't put your kid into that, because he'll good chance he's going to crash it and cost you a lot of money. He goes, I've got an old LJ Trina sports sedan sitting here. here. You can have that. Give him that because if he writes that off, it's only going to cost you 5K. So, um, so yeah, thanks to Barry. He gave me the um, Trina sports sedan, which I looked after as a kid. And, and yeah, I went and raced that. Um, I think my first ever race, obviously, the fantastic place at Oran Park. Um, and then, yeah, just did the state series between Emory Park and Oran Park. Were you doing all of the work on the car yourself at that stage? Yeah, I did all the work myself. I started my um, first year apprentice as a motor mechanic at 16 as well. And prior to that, I was helping Dad on his supercars and on all his trucks and bits and pieces. So I've been on the tools since I was about 12. But yeah, I worked on the car myself, prepped it myself, built my own engines. Um, my dad's a uh, spray painter, panel beater, so we did all the bodywork ourselves. So yeah, it was a bit of a family all-in effort. Your dad had quite a bit of experience, didn't he? Because he was racing in, I think it was the AMS car series and uh, might have done a bit of super touring stuff as well. Yeah, that's correct. He did the AMS car series. He uh, fronted up the Bathurst 1000, the Primus Bathurst 1000 in 1997, yeah, where he finished 16th outright. And I think fourth or fifth privateer. So before that, obviously, mini racing and a lot of sports sedans. And yeah, he'd been around for a fair while. So the racing bug was in the family, but obviously those early years working on your own race car and doing the mechanical apprenticeship, it would have given you that grounding in terms of understanding not just how to drive the race car, but also how to work on and maintain racing cars as well. Yeah, correct. I think, uh, I think that was one of my dad's uh, rules that if I couldn't fix my own car, I couldn't go racing. So I had to learn pretty quick how to fix cars and, and it definitely, it's 
paid off now, that's for sure. And um, obviously to understand the car and have some mechanical knowledge, it helps you with driving as well. Those early years, you mentioned there that you got to race at Amaru Park. They would have been some of the very last race meetings to have been held at that circuit before it shut down. What are your memories of that track? What was it like to drive? I loved Emeru Park. I actually got my cams licence there with Peter Finlay. That was the first experience I had at Emeru Park. And then, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I did the, the last race meeting and maybe a couple, one before that. But uh, I loved the place. I wasn't a fan of stop-go. I think my both race meetings, I crashed at stop-go. Um, not heavily, but, yeah, ripped a few flares off, I think, as everyone had done. But other than that, it was a, it was a fantastic place. I grew up there as a kid. Um, with my dad racing and climbing up and down the rocks as a kid and, and, and running up and down the hill as you do. So, yeah, I had fond memories there. So over the next few years, you would continue to compete in sports dads and HQ Holdens, predominantly at a state level. And then in 2004 at Queensland Raceway, all of a sudden there's this guy, Garth Walden, who rocks up in an AU Falcon V8 supercar, an ex-Ford Performance slash Glen Seaton racing car. Nobody really knew who you were or understood how you got there, but how did that all come about, the supercar opportunity, and was that always the goal for you? Yeah, it was a bit of a crazy um, way how it all happened, I suppose, between, as you said, racing HQ Holdens and uh, powerful sports sedans. Over the years, um, I drove my dad's supercar a couple of times as well in in small events. Um, And then one day, Dad decided... Yeah, it's time to buy another supercar, so let's go buy one. So we did. And the the, the, actual, the, the whole plan was to do, back then, the development series, I think it was called, um, or maybe still... Conica series, it would have been. Conica series then, yeah. yeah. So that, that was the plan, was to race in that. Um, and then we had a... Our budget fell through just, bef- uh, just at the start of the season, so we, I think we missed the first one or two rounds of the Conica series, maybe the first round as we were still trying to find a budget. And then um, I bumped in the back of the pits at the Conic around at uh, City Motorsport Park um, by a lady called Shelley. And she knew Bat Romano and said, hey, if you, uh, you should give Bat Romano a call because he's got a, a main game licence that he needs someone to use. Because at that time, there was teams turning up and just going out, practice qualifying, not qualifying for the event and going home so they didn't get fined. Paul Romano, I think the last Supercars event that he did was beginning of 2003. And at that stage, neither he nor his father particularly wanted to race themselves anymore. But like you say, this was when there were the Supercars licences, which we now know as racing entitlements contracts. And if you didn't turn up and attempt to qualify, you would get fined for non-attendance. So even though the Romanos couldn't or wouldn't race for whatever reason, they still had to fulfil their obligation to have a car on the grid so we saw that their license was leased out to a number of different teams sometimes it was teams who would maybe have an old car that they just wanted to do a few laps in so they would turn up on the Friday do practice do their minimum three laps of qualifying not do a time quick enough to get into the event and then pack up and go home but for you guys what that gave you was a very cheap opportunity or a very cheap means to get yourselves onto the main game grid yeah it was it was uh it was a bizarre experience, and a great like it was a great experience. Sorry, but um, yeah, to I just called up Bat Romano out of blue and and told him what uh, what we're trying to do, and he said, "Yeah, come up to Queensland." So we put the car in a truck, went up to Queensland, and we had to pull a lot of stuff out of his Commodore, certain sensors and uh, camera systems and bits and pieces, so it would make us eligible for the event. And then um, actually, Bat ended up helping, or he supported me the Queensland event we used some of his um, team and some of his equipment and qualified for the event and I think that was probably my I think we ended up 16th or something something silly um, like that for the for the round oh for the race it was back then it was a I think it was the last of the only I think it was a 300 kilometer mm. race yeah it would have been the single 300 k yeah, race it was, yep. it was 36 degrees I remember it was I, I passed out as I parked into um, Park Fermi I was exhausted but yeah, it was a, it was a it was a it was a great experience. It was a funny way into supercars, and then obviously we continued on for the rest of the year, and you know kept finding budget 
as we went along and um, as I said Bat helped us out for a fair few rounds as well to you know keep us turning up. How was that experience of competing in main game supercars as a genuine privateer up against by that stage some pretty serious teams and outfits that had a lot more resources than what you did? Yeah it was tough it was my toughest year of motorsport I would think but probably the most enjoyable year of motorsport I've ever had to you know race along some of those guys and um, yeah we had we didn't have all the budgets and the equipment that they had um, we, we did get a lot of support through um, full performance racing back then well because we bought the car off them and they were very helpful and and they were sort of like a satellite team to them which was which was great it gave us a lot of insight um, and I got a lot of help from Glenn Seaton back in the day as well and uh, so that that helps a lot. Again, I was I, we, all our crew was voluntary. No one got paid. Um, I worked on the car. I was full time in a workshop on the car. So I, again, I built all my engines, gearbox, diffs, as a as a proper privateer outfit. And sometimes it was rewarding. You know, we out qualified the second full performance car a few times, which was um, I think at Sandown and Bathurst, which was um, that was rewarding, but still down the back of the grid. <laughs> We'll talk about the Bathurst event because, as I recall, that wasn't actually your car. That was Grant Elliott's car that you ran for that event and he was your co-driver and I think that the deal was that he contributed the car so that you could both run in that event. Unfortunately, the, the memories that I have of that event were Marcus Ambrose had come into the pits on lap 17 and the TV crews had interviewed him just after he'd got out of the car. And he said, yeah, we've gone for a bit of an early pit stop because that's going to work in with our strategy, but kind of need the race to be running green for a few more laps. We don't really want there to be a safety car, but everyone's been pretty well behaved out there, so we don't think that there's going to be any safety cars. Two laps later, lap 19, unfortunately, you would cause the first safety car of the race with a, a crash at the dipper. So talk us through, because you were in the car, mm. the first 18 laps of the race and then what caused the, the shunt that ultimately put you out? Yeah, it was uh, not the best day of my career, that's for sure. Um, we had a really bad start to the race. I, obviously, I started the race, and um, I was starting on the hill under the bridge, and with 120 litres of fuel and you know low diff ratio, a line lock, um, and my car didn't have a, actually a line lock in it because so, I was using um, the car that Grant Elliott supplied from Robert Tebbs. Um, it was all a little bit different inside the cockpit and actually it was my mistake. I stalled it on the grid because I didn't release the line lock early enough and anyway, went back to last and we we're pressing on back trying to get catch back up to the field and we're actually we we're going I was going faster with full fuel load than what I actually did in qualifying. Um, so I was trying to press on as much as I could and then I got the call on the radio just to we, we set ourselves a, a lap time all day. And um, obviously I was well below that. And uh, yeah, some engineers said, just pull it back, mate, pull it back. And I did, I just pulled it back and I was driving pretty comfortably. And I still don't know what happened. I don't know if I used too much of the curb at the S's or if something broke at the same time, but I know it just, the it snapped around. All I remember was looking out the window, hitting the fence and then waking up on the way to the hospital. <laughs> That's about it. Unfortunate way to finish your Bathurst 1000 debut, but the mountain would be kinder to you in future years. So after that 2004 season, we didn't really see you in any sort of circuit racing events per se until 2007. What were you doing in the couple of years out of the sport? Good question. Um, what was I doing? So I, was, I had my own uh, workshop back then as well, which I started in 2003. Um, using uh, some space in my dad's factory. Um, so I was working on cars and looking after some race cars. Um, in 2005, um, 2005, I ran the F3 team. So I looked after Aaron Craddy, um, his brother Nathan Craddy and, and David Borg in 2005 when we won the um, Australian Formula 3 championship and the Gold Star. So I did that and in 2006, I was uh, I ran Aaron Grady and Porsche Carrera Cup, the first of the 997. Um, in 2007, I went and actually ran the 
uh, Super 2 team for Aaron McGill and Luke Yildon. So, yeah, I stepped out of racing. It was a, it was a hard year. And we actually lost our, our racing entitlements license at the end of 2004. We were supposed to have it for 2005, and Supercars took it off us and gave it to uh, Larry Perkins for a couple of years. So he leased it for a couple of years. So 2007, you mentioned that you were running Aaron McGill's team, which, as I recall, that was HPM was the major sponsor, and um, it was him and Luke Yulden in AU Falcons, but then I think Luke Yulden got a BA a bit later on in the year as well and actually won the Bathurst round, didn't he, I think, that year? That's correct. Yeah, he did win the Bathurst, Bathurst round, and we had another kid, Ryan Brown. Yep, from got, improved production. Yeah, yep. driving the second AU, so we had three cars at Bathurst that weekend. 2007, though, you also got... He actually won, and Luke Yildon won a race at Winton as well in the wet in the AU Falcon. Pretty impressive considering how old those cars were by then. Correct. Um, So, 07, we also saw you get back behind the wheel, though, in production cars. We saw you competing at the Bathurst 12-hour, but we also saw you running in that white VY or VZ Commodore SS, I think it was, in the Australian production car series. Now, what was the history of that car? Uh, So, we bought that car from a wrecking yard, um, and then I built it up over... I think 2000 and end of 2006, started 2007, for myself, um, Dad and Michael Ald to run in the Bathurst 12-hour um, as a three-way deal, So, which to date is still going. We still build cars together and three of us still drive, so it's been a good relationship between three of us. And um, So, yeah, we after the Bathurst 12-hour, um, I decided to do a couple of production car rounds in it and I was... Sponsored by a few people, Michael Ald, one of them at SIDPAB, and um, Hunter Holden, and, and a few other people supported me to do a few rounds. Let's talk about racing entitlements contracts. And this might be a bit more of a prickly question, but you kind of touched on the subjects before. And the whole notion of Team Sydney, we've obviously seen it in supercars this year with Jonathan Webb's outfit, but the whole concept of having a Sydney based team. It was not actually a new idea because if we go back 12 years ago to the beginning of 2008, you were originally supposed to be running a supercars team based out of Sydney. You know, I think it would have been a Commodore supercar, but there were some issues in the background and it never quite came to fruition. What are your memories of what happened around that time? Yeah, that is a bit prickly, that one. Um, that is correct, though. It was supposed to be Team Sydney uh, in the Supercars Championship in 2008. Uh, we just secured the racing entitlements contract again after um, it was taken back off Perkins, Larry Perkins. And then um, we're supposed to have a... I don't know what happened about the Commodore. I don't know why that didn't come off. But something happened with a week leading up to Clipsal and we decided to purchase a Ford last minute from uh, WPS. And I don't know. I don't know what quite happened. I believe they went to Queensland to pick it up, and then there was no car to be picked up, and something, something along those lines. I, I was told. I'm not quite sure the ins and outs of it all, but um, I know that was the Monday of the week of Clipsal 500. So I rocked up to Adelaide with my helmet and gear and name border in pit lane. And then to get the phone call from my dad that it was, uh, yeah, there was no car and we're not going to make it on the grid, which was, um, yeah, a, a little disappointing to say the least. Um, and then I had to, and I was there all weekend, so I went and hid from the media and actually sat in the grandstand and watched the racing, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a bad weekend and then it, it continued on. I don't know the ins and outs of what went on from there, but it was quite clear I don't think we were really wanted there um, and that we basically wanted to get out uh, and then I believe we were given the year to try and sell the licence which we ended up selling at, at the end of I think start of 2009 I think to Walkinshaw's. So when you say that you felt like you weren't wanted was that because people felt that you were too much in the privateer mould and it was at a time when 
they were trying to ramp up the I suppose the the stature or the professionalism in inverted commas of the category yeah maybe um, again I wasn't privy to a lot of the information I was I was leaving that up to our uh, to my dad and um, our solicitors and accountants to sort out but I don't quite know the real ins and outs of it but basically it come to a point where I think we everyone agreed to disagree and and, and walked away from it. Do you have any regrets about the fact that that never came off the, the supercars deal for you? No, I don't think so, Lockie. I think it was going. It was about to be another hard year, and I know what how hard it was in 2004. Um, it was a lot of fun, but the pressure to find the money and turn up on the grid uh, in 2004, like there was many times we're driving to the track in the truck on the phone trying to get enough money to get the car on the grid and buy some tyres. So that was tough. And then, then to be able to drive the car and always drive 98% because you, you couldn't afford... if you, you knew if you put it in the wall, I couldn't afford to fix it. So that was, that was hard. That was tough to drive like that as well. So I'm not disappointed. Like, I, I would have loved probably to have another crack, but... I'm, not disappointed about the, the pressure and the hard work it was about to be. And on a much more positive note, even though the supercars thing may not have quite worked out for you, you still got to drive some very cool race cars over the, the ensuing years. So one of the cars that we most associate with you when we think of Garth Walden and we think of GWR is Radicals. So when did your affiliation and involvement with Radical first begin? Uh, so that started in 2000, towards the end of 2008, I started, actually started on the 1st of October 2008 with Radical Australia, um, so they were quite new to the scene and um, had a, had a, about five or six cars and um, so they employed me to be their workshop manager, um, which then led into category manager and so on and so on and I did the deal to move us into Sydney Motorsport Park uh, back in 2009 and sort of went from having six cars and there was only myself and one mechanic to having 15 staff and we were managing 43 radicals at, at any one time. So, and then that obviously that led into driving them every week or every second week or whatever it may be. So I did a lot of laps at Sydney Motorsport Park in a radical and gave me the opportunity to go and race in Europe for the radical works team as well. What do you most enjoy about driving the radical race cars? Just the aero, the grip level, and the speed. The corner corner speed is just um, unbelievable, and, and especially if you, you move up to the V8 version and to race a V8 um, SR8 Radical at Spa and go flat through O Rouge is something that I'll never forget at 260 kilometres an hour or something. Um, you know that that's hair raising. That gets your uh, gets the old ticker going. But um, yeah, they were just a cool car there. You know, they stop really well. They have really good downforce. Um, you know, you can make a change and it responds to your changes. So, yeah, pretty precise car. So you've raced the Radical SR3, which is the motorcycle engine four-cylinder version, the SR8, which is the V8 version. But another one that you raced was the El Mofo Radical, which was the electric Radical at Wakefield Park in 2014. And it was a history-making weekend because that was the first time that an electrically-powered race car had won a race up against petrol-powered race cars. What do you remember about that weekend? Yeah, that was a, that was a cool car. Brett Sutherland built that car. And, um, yeah, I was very privileged to be able to drive that. It was, I drove it for the full state series season and, and we actually won our class in the state series. But yeah, to win the race at Wakefield, yeah, I believe it was the first time an electric car won against a gasoline-powered car in the world, um, which was quite cool. And it was uh, it was a heavy car, unfortunately, with all its batteries and, and motors. But um, far out, it had a lot of power, and it was it was like wrestling a gorilla. It was um, it was tough on the old arms, but uh, it was a lot of fun to drive. 
I remember I was actually commentating those races at Wakefield Park that weekend and I remember the torque coming out of the low-speed corners was noticeably superior to the petrol-powered cars. But one of the things that I also remember was when it got late in the race, the petrol cars would start to catch you up again because the battery was starting to go flat. Yeah, so we had all these switches and knobs and stuff on the steering wheel. It was quite busy, and so we had regenerative braking, one with um, off-throttle regen and one with braking regen, so just all off the rear axle. So you had to play with all these knobs in all big hard braking zones, you could run more, but then the light braking zones, you had to turn it all off because we're trying to lock a rear and turn you around. But doing that also overheated the battery, so you had to keep an eye on the battery temperatures and the battery life and turn switches and knobs, and it was just busy, and then brake bias as well, and it was, it was probably one of the busiest cars I've ever driven, but it was one of the uh, most rewarding to, to you know, get a lap time out of when we think about fast race cars that produce a lot of downforce and generate a lot of corner speed and have a lot of aero, Radical is one, but uh, the other formula of motorsport that comes to mind, which you've also had some success in, is World Time Attack. And In fact, you're a three-time winner of the World Time Attack event here in Australia, 2013, 2014 and 2015, driving the Tilton Mitsubishi Evo. And time attack, it's very different to circuit racing in terms of the mindset because it's all about doing one lap and it only has to be a single lap that is as fast as it can possibly be. You're not racing other cars for track position and uh, unlike other forms of motorsport, reliability is not really that much of a factor because if you set the fastest lap time and then your car blows up, it doesn't matter, you still win the event anyway. Tell us uh, about your experience in Time Attack competition. Yeah, Time Attack's one of those um, sports that I remember when it first came out, everyone was like, this is crazy. Like, no one's going to jump on board this. Like, what's all this about? It's just a glorified super sprint. But one by one, everyone got addicted to it. It's probably the most addictive form of motorsport, I think, um, especially if you get to drive you know, a pro-class car, which is just insane unbelievable power unbelievable downforce and I think it becomes addictive as a driver because it's not very often where you get to turn everything up to 11 in power and aero and and grip level and and to be able to drive it as fast as you possibly can to the to the inch of its life um and then and the reward from that one lap and you've got to as you said you only get one lap so you've got to be basically as close to 10 tenths all the time as possible and then then you also got a tyre which goes away at the end of the lap so you got to you know predict that as well it's just it's a that's probably the coolest car I've ever driven I'd say in my in my life to it's just fast it was exhilarating scary at times um but just a really cool form of um cool form of racing and to and probably one of my highlights in that car was to um go side by side with Daniel Ricciardo at Top Gear Festival at SMP many years ago and, and have a drag race down the, down the main straight and go um, basically side by side into Turn 1 was pretty cool. You look at the stopwatch for time attack and you look at the lap times that those cars are doing, which in many cases are well and truly faster than what supercars would do and we're talking about four-cylinder turbocharged cars on treaded tyres. But the stopwatch tells one story, but... Give us a sense. What's the actual feeling like when you're on a fully committed lap in one of those cars barreling into Turn 1 at Sydney Motorsport Park? It takes a while to get used to, but uh, when you're barreling, barreling into Turn 1 at 286 kilometres an hour or something, um, flat into Turn 1, it takes a lot of commitment. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you need to have a good car, you need to have a good crew to uh, obviously have a good car to go through there at those speeds but yeah it's commitment commitment uh, plus you know you talk yourself through your warm-up lap and and psych yourself up to do it that's for sure um but after a while you do get used to it and you get used to those speeds and uh as i said they're just they have so much downforce when you're talking you know two and a half tons three tons of downforce um they stick to the road fairly well and then when you and then having 1200 horsepower or thereabouts of power as well, and it puts its power to the ground. It's like getting shot out of a cannon every time you stand on the accelerator. So 
early 2010s, you've had the opportunity to drive some really cool cars. You've had a lot of success in Time Attack. You're working as a mechanic with the Radicals. You are working very hard, but uh, things are starting to go pretty well for you. And uh, obviously, we've now got the GWR business, GWR Australia, which has this amazing facility that prepares lots of different cars that run in everything from circuit racing to tarmac rally and, and just about everything in between. But where did the concept of having your own race team as GWR Australia first start out? Um, as I said, if you cast back to 2003 where I started my little one-man show at a dad's workshop looking after um, production cars and uh, supercars and F3s and bits and pieces. I really enjoyed that time working with my own business and um, obviously the opportunity with Radical Australia come on board and that was that was a new chapter uh, of my life to you know get involved in the business side of things in a, in a pretty commercial um, business and then you know after about five and a half years it was time it was time to leave and we're only looking after Radicals and I wanted to branch out into other forms of motorsport again and so I decided to leave and start GWR up, as a, which we did in the start of 2014. Um, myself and uh, Warren Ambrose, there's two of us. We started with two cars, a Radical and a, and a Porsche Career Cup car. Um, and that was it. We, we actually started again out of, out of my dad's factory for about a few months before we got our own factory and, and then and pressed on from there. And obviously, nearly seven years down the track, it's grown quite a fair bit. That was Ash Samadi, wasn't it, who was driving the Carrera Cup car that year? Correct, yeah. I had Ash Samadi in the Carrera Cup car in 2014 and, and Costa in his Radical. So from two cars in 2014 to, what would it be, close to 40 cars that we're now running in 2020 in, yeah. in Carrera Cup, Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge or Michelin Sprint Challenge as it's now known, the Radical Australia Cup of course plus the Australian Prototype Series and the New South Wales Supersport Series. You've done a bit of production car racing, you still run cars in the Bathurst 12 hour along with the New South Wales Production Touring Car Championship. You run some cars in Tarmac Rally including the lovely Porsche 911 GT2 RS for Jeff Morton uh, plus some GT stuff as well you, you've run cars in the Bathurst 12 hour including the uh the Nissan GTR that you ran at this year's event so how did you go from two cars in 2014 to well over 30 cars six years later uh a lot of hard work and good service I think um it was I think you know you you get back I got back into the uh, different paddocks that I haven't been around for a while just looking after radicals and you know you start bumping into um, old faces and new faces and you know the ball just starts rolling and you get the phone call can you look after my car and yeah or, yeah of course we can um, and then it just yeah starts to snowball between different categories and yeah I don't know how we end up with so many different I think there's eight different categories we race over which keeps us busy with normally around 30 to 34 race weekends a year but um yeah I think it's I would it's good I enjoy it it's there's nothing it doesn't get boring there's always something new there's always there's always a new problem to solve there's always a new car to fix or something and yeah it's it's I think keeps everyone on their toes and one of the things that I've discovered since I've started doing some PR and social media stuff from your team in the last 18 months or so is that there's always really cool stories to tell as well. There's always an interesting project or, you know, interesting events or, or new people that you're bringing into the sport. And very shortly, we're actually going to do an audio tour of the workshop where Garth and I are going to go for a walk and talk about some of the facilities that we do have here in the workshop. But before we get there, I want to talk about some of the people that you've got involved because you've managed to assemble a very talented and dedicated crew of mechanics, engineers, people with specific expertise in, in key areas to make sure that you're always able to deliver your customers and your clients cars that are prepared immaculately, are fast and reliable. How did you go about assembling such a great crew of people? I, I'm just... I find myself lucky, I believe. We, I've bumped into so many people over the years and um, most of them 
I've known and, and then some of the guys we've got now have just come out of a job um, job resume so uh, that we've been lucky to jump on board and they've been very skilled uh, mechanics so we've got fantastic as you said we've got some fantastic engineers and, and all our boys that work for us um, they're all fantastic they all gel really well they all have their specific categories that they look after um, and it's a very good family environment I think the key is to look after look after your staff and make it as friendly and a friendly environment as you can because we spend so much time together away racing and and even in the workshop and as most people know in motorsports know eight to five job we 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 all spend a lot of hours in this workshop so you know it needs to be um it needs to be fun um it needs to be like a family environment and um you need to keep the team morale pretty high all, all times we look at the drivers that you've got on board and Obviously, in motorsport, there's basically two different types of competitors. You've got the aspiring professional drivers who are often the young guns coming through the junior development categories and aiming to make it to a full-time career in supercars or, or overseas to pursue the dream of being a professional race car driver. But you've also got the amateur in inverted commas, gentlemen drivers who don't necessarily want to race professionally but want to race recreationally but who still want to learn and improve and do the very best that they can. And a lot of your customers fall into the latter category, the recreational races. You've got some exceptionally talented drivers on board. You look at people like Chris Perini and and Peter Padden in the Radical Australia Cup who've had a lot of success. But even you look at some of the other drivers like Brent Howard or... Indira and Patiachi and you look at the lap times that they've done and the improvements that they've made in their speed at some of the events that they've been to have been enormous. Often you'll see that they'll turn up at the start of a race weekend and then by the end of the weekend they're going four or five seconds a lap faster than they were at the start. And one of the reoccurring themes whenever I chat to those drivers is they talk about what a good job you and your crew are able to do in bringing out the best of their performance and helping them learn and improve. What do you say as being the key to getting the best out of your drivers? Um, one, you need to have a, a good atmosphere inside the team. Everyone needs to be happy. Um, two, you know, for our um, AM guys, we, we don't coach them or engineering them any differently than what we would a pro, so to speak. So we... We put pressure on them as well, um, but not too much. There's a, there's a certain amount of pressure you can put on them and there's only a certain amount of things that you can teach them at any one time. And we just break break the whole lap down and, and work out you know, what they need to work on the most and just go from there and, and just encourage them and push them along to where we think their limit is. And then, and then once that box is ticked, go on to the next box. And we get more enjoyment out of watching those guys in, you know, improve and, and the smiles on their faces and to, for them to do something they didn't think they could ever do. Um, we've, I've, we've had many drivers have just walked in off the street and never driven a race car and I had to teach them how to drive a race car and then now out there driving Porsches or production cars. So to do that as well is, um, yeah, something I get personal enjoyment out of. Mm, do you have any ambitions as a team owner to bring a young up-and-coming driver in and develop them into someone who can then go and become a professional race car driver or do you not really see that as being your target market? No, I think that's next for us, for sure. Um, I think we have the, the network of um, customers to be able to help with a young up-and-coming driver, for sure, and you know, just finding the right driver at the right time. Um, in the right category, but I think that's definitely the, the next thing on our list. I suppose you, you've started to dabble a bit in that area with Cameron Hill. Um, yep. He's not an official GWR driver per se, but he and his small Canberra-based career Cup team do um, have a, a technical alliance with GWR and they do get support with data and, um, and setting up the car. And we've seen that particularly in the last six months, Cameron's had some exceptional results in Carrera Cup. In fact, as we record this podcast, he is the last driver to win a race in Carrera Cup Australia. Yeah, I love working with Cam. He's such a dedicated kid. Um, he puts his heart and soul... I really like the the family atmosphere that he has with his 
you know, mum and dad and working on the car himself, it sort of takes you back to what I did as well. So um, he's a fantastic guy to work with and he put so much pressure and determination on himself that, um, yeah, he get, he's starting to get the best results that he should get. So, uh, yeah, he's had, a, he's had a little bit of a rough start at Adelaide due to a little mistake, but, um, yeah, he had a really good Australian Grand Prix as, as much as it lasted. But... Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's he's good to work with, and hopefully we can get you know another another kid like Cameron. And obviously we we, we had Cameron Crick last year as well, and, and Ollie Shannon um, jump into uh, Porsche Sprint Cup. So hopefully when we go back to racing this year, we can um, maybe put uh, another young kid in in Porsche Sprint Cup to finish off the season. Looking a bit longer term for. GWR, are there any grand objectives or goals that you see yourself achieving sort of looking three, five years down the track? Um, oh, I think we'd, no doubt we'd love to win a, a Porsche Championship. Either one um, we'd be very happy with. That's, that's definitely a, a big goal on our, on our list. Um, obviously we ticked off the Radical Championship last year. Wouldn't mind winning a few more of those. Um, Bathurst six hour would be good. Um, we've been trying to win that for a while now, uh, and, and fell short a couple of times. Although you've won your class a few times at the six hour, we have. But yeah, winning an outright would be much better. Um, so yeah, I think winning more championships is the biggest goal for us. Um, uh, obviously, we want to win the Tarmac Rally Championship um, this year if we can, and, and whatever. Just winning championships is is what's on the on the uh, on the goal list. Seems like a pretty reasonable goal for any race team. All right, what we might do now is we might go for a wander and have a bit more of a talk about some of the specific facilities here at the GWR Australian Workshop. So I'm going to start off in quite literally the engine room here at GWR where engines get built and uh, rebuilt and maintained and we've got a dyno in here as well. Uh, Give us a bit of an overview, Garth, as to the facilities in this room. Yeah, so we do. We try and do all our engine building and, and sub-assembly building in-house. Um, we don't build all engines in here, but we build most of the cars that we look after engines um, in here. We do all our gearboxes, mainly do all our diffs and uprights. Um, so basically all sub-assembly we do in-house, um, which, which is quite handy to have. Um, we've got a dyno next door that we run all our engines up on and um, obviously bed engines in and, and do checks and bits and pieces on that we need to. Um, we also got our shop room in here. So we do our own dampers in-house. doesn't matter what type of damper. We rebuild them, service them for our own cars and, and um, outside customers. We've got our damper dyno. Um, we're also an Australian distributor for a um, Holland shock absorber company called Tractive, which do a lot of active dampers. So mainly all our dampers uh, through that is all active. So we have a lot of those in um, uh, tarmac rally cars, time attack cars, and um, also some of our production cars that allow it. So yeah, we do we do a lot of work with our dampers. With the active dampers, talk us through some of the advantages of those compared to normal passive damper technology. Yeah, so with the active damper, you obviously have a broader range of to control um, roll, pitch, and G. So you can make up your own map, uh, basically, say, for a time attack car to stiffen up the outside um, damper and unload the inside damper through and through different type of corners to control, to run a, a lighter spring rate and control dampening with high aero cars as well. Um, there's a, a broad range of advantages for it. Um, and then also you can have five different maps if you want. So depending on how the car's handling, you can just, by a flick of a switch or a button, just change all the modes between a wet mode, maybe a little bit more of an oversteer car to a little bit more of an understeer car as the tyre goes off, fuel loads. There's many advantages of it. And I can imagine that particularly in a tarmac rally environment where you've got all different road surfaces and different weather conditions and all of those different variables that you don't necessarily get in circuit racing, that having that adjustability within the dampers would be a big advantage. Yeah, it's huge, especially, in, yeah, as you said, in our tarmac rally stuff. So they normally have a wet and a dry map. Um, and most of our tarmac rally cars, they still have to use the standard buttons. So that only gives them two modes. But... In between stages, we can plug in, change the map completely, 
and um, and send them again so we can have pre, pre-made maps that we can just keep firing in the cars in between stages. With the engines, do you do all of the different types of engines, so Porsches and Radicals and production cars? Yeah, so we rebuild our Radical engines, rebuild our uh, BMW production car, Mercedes production cars, um, Mitsubishi Evo, uh, we do Porsche engines, um, basically, what else have we got here? Our store, um, yeah, that's about that's about it. I've got an old uh, an old Charade engineer we're doing at the moment. I've got another Holden six cylinder engine that we're doing for an LJ Tirana. So yeah, all sorts of things, mate. What's the Charade engine for? It's actually a turbo Charade engine for for one, <laughs> for one of our boys that works here. So it's his track car. So we're just building that for him at the moment as well. So that's just a little bit of a fun fun thing to do. Actually, your partner Miriam used to race a Charade, didn't she, in Super TT? It's actually the engine out of that car. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, there we go. So that completes our tour of the engine room. Let's move on to the next one. Next stop in our audio tour of the GWR workshop is going to be the fabrication room. And Garth, you've got a whole lot of equipment that is either installed or is about to be installed in this room. So when it's finished, what are the capabilities going to be? Yeah, so we've, we've already got our mill, our lathe. You know, we've got MIG, TIGs, uh, folders, benders, um, drill presses, grinders. So basically, we it was the next phase of our business is to ramp up our fabrication stuff so we used to send some of our um, bigger fabrication jobs out and do light fabrication where now we want to get more into doing basically all fabrication in-house so we're trying to do as much as we can in-house so we control the lead time of our projects basically. When you talk about the fabrication work that you do obviously that includes um, I mean mechanical components for the cars but body panels as well or is that something that you outsource no we outsource all our body panel stuff if we need to make something uh for the body then uh we can definitely do it here but any any damage stuff we send out but we can we can mill up uprights we can mill up brackets we can bend tubes we can weld cages we can um basically do any major fabrication now so how much of a balance is there between the stuff that you can fabricate in-house and components that might already come ready-made that you would get from a manufacturer? Um, yeah, some stuff's ready-made, but if you go back to, you know, we've built a few production cars now um, and there's a lot of stuff off the shelf that you can't buy. So you have to, we've got engineers upstairs, Gian um, and his team, so they CAD draw what we need if we need to make a bracket or we need to make an offset bush or a delete bracket for an AC or whatever it may be, we can get it, draw it upstairs and come down and, and mill it out ourselves. Good stuff. So there we go. That's a look at the GWR fabrication room. We'll wander out into the main workshop area and we've got four hoists and I'm just going to see if I can identify all of the cars that we've got. So we've got the, the Porsche GT2 RS, which is... Red Thunder, as it's known, which is Jeff Morton's Tarmac Rally car. We've got Brent Howard's production touring car, which is the, the BMW M3. We've got, I can see, Duvash and Padiachi's Porsche Carrera Cup car. A few radicals here. I can see Chris Perini's one, Steve Champion's one's here as well. Peter Patton's car under the cover. Phil Anseline's radical there. Ryan Godfrey's radical. We've got Nick Priestin's beautiful uh, 131 Fiat Arbath. Um, and Michael Sheargold's Gen 1 Cup car. Thanks for not all of the cars that you look after, though, are they? So I think we need to head next door, Garth, and check out some of the other ones in the GWR stable. Yeah, this is just the shop where we look after all the cars. So we're the, we've got six bays here for all the boys, and um, next door is where we store them all. To, so the boys have got some room to work. So as we go and wander next door into the main storage area, I can see... Uh, the chassis for a radical that's being worked on at the moment. What's the story with this one, Garth? Yeah, so I bought this one off a, a customer not long ago, which was crashed, heavily crashed, and um, I bought it as uh, as, a, as a bit of a project for our team. So it's going to be the GWR team car. So all the boys spend their time out of hours to rebuild it back to back to 
scratch and um, you know, give them the opportunity to jump in the saddle and, and have a drive at Wakefield Park or Sydney Motorsport Park. So they'll all take turns of doing track days and towing it down. And So they're just going to pay the runner. I'll, I'll, I'll fix everything up, but it's a pretty cool team bonding experience and give them a, a little bit of an insight of what, what a radical is and, and have a bit of fun on the track itself. Certainly good to give them the experience of what it's like from behind the wheel, that's for sure. So we'll on to the next door where we've got a garage where there are heaps and heaps and heaps of different types of cars. Not all race cars either, incidentally, and uh, a lot of the cars are currently under covers, so we can't uh, necessarily see what they are, but I can see that we've got an Aussie racing car there, a few more Porsches, some more Radicals. Um, at least one Hyundai XL yeah. and a couple of couple more Tarmac Rally cars by the looks of it as well. Yeah, that's right. We've got, uh, what have we got here? We've got, we got three A45 race cars, two production cars, one Tarmac Rally car. As you said, a Hyundai XL. That's uh, Michael Old's son, actually, that we built that for. So he's, he's 15, he's about to start racing. Aussie race car that we built an engine for and, um, and uh, a customer does track days with. Um, Indira and Padiashi's Porsche, Rob Woods's Porsche, um, Darren Barlow's store, and then what have we got? Ten, another ten radicals there up on stands under covers. So, and a forklift. Of course, one of the services that you actually offer is vehicle storage, and that can be for race cars, but it could be for classic or collectible road cars as well. If people need somewhere to store it, then that's something that you can offer to people. Yeah, correct. So we've got both factories now, just one to offer storage for people with either performance cars or classic cars, like you said. Um, We've done that with a couple of customers, Um, unfortunately. We're out of room now, so it's mainly just our arrive-and-drive customers that have their cars here. That's a shame because I was going to hit you up to see if you could store my VF Commodore SS when I can afford for it to not be my daily drive anymore, but you might be out of space. I'm sure we can find a rack and pick it up with a forklift <laughs> and put it up somewhere. <laughs> there's also, uh, sorry, I forget to mention, there's also can, 40, two 40-foot containers out the back as well. One's got six radicals in it as well, and then the other one is set up for to um, transport radicals overseas so when we raced at New Zealand last year we could fit four radicals in with an internal crane to pick them up and then with a mezzanine to put all our tyre racks and um, tyre tire trolleys and toolboxes and spare parts and equipment so we can travel either New Zealand we're going to actually use that to go to um, Perth this year for uh, around the Radical Australia Cup as well which has been canned now but Let's head out the back, actually, because one of the other vital components to the GWR Australia operation is how do you actually get the cars to and from racetracks. And uh, you've got a couple of big semi-trailers that you use to transport your race cars. You've actually got two trailers. So talk to us and give us a bit of an insight into how they're all equipped. Uh, Yeah, so we've got one trailer... Um, a 48 foot trailer that we uh, set up to be mainly just for our Porsche customers so it's decked out with all our Porsche spares um, and we basically run Porsche Sprint Cup and Carrera Cup with that trailer and can also use in between as our production car transporter and then we've got another 45 foot trailer which my dad built um, for us last year started last year which is basically just decked out for our radicals so we have all our spares in there, spare body work, spare engines, suspension, everything we need is it's just decked out for radical only. And it can be used for, uh, sometimes when we go up to Cairns for a tarmac rally, because I can fit more cars in that one, we might use that to take our tarmac rally cars, but that's mainly um, set up for radicals. We've got two prime movers, which um, are supplied to us from uh, Brett Hobson, Hobson Motorsport, so he helps us out there with um, a couple of trucks, which is um, quite good. One of the things that you sometimes have to deal with, and even more so as your teams become bigger and more successful, is date clashes where you've got conflicting events where sometimes you might have to be in two places at once on any given weekend. How do you go about managing those sorts of situations? It's tough. That's very tough. There's normally at least um, one to two rounds a year where we're racing um, 
three different three different race weekends in three different states. So we have to have a lot of equipment. So we, we have a lot of a lot of equipment stored away to be able to spread spread out between three different racetracks, that's for sure. And that's when you need about six trucks, but I'm not gonna go and buy any more trucks, that's for sure. But um yeah, it that can be difficult. And then there's there's always always a few rounds where we're at two different um, states at two different events, which is manageable. Um, and then the ideal ones are when we've got a lot of cars at the one place. It sort of helps manage, uh, it needs a lot of people, but at least it's all in one spot. So it really is an amazing facility here at GWR, and full credit to you for working as hard as you have to build it up to what it is as quickly as you have. But you are a race car driver, and you still enjoy going motor racing, and every time there's an opportunity to jump into a race car, we can all see how much you enjoy it. So do you envisage there being a time at some stage in the future? Right now, obviously, your primary focus is on running and managing the business, but do you see there being a time where you can step back and then concentrate more on going racing for fun again? I hope one day that's possible, absolutely, because at the moment it's quite tough to go motor racing myself and because you end up doing a poor job at both driving and managing your team. Um, probably the most enjoyable weekend of racing I've had recently was the Asian Amon round at the Bend at the start of the year where I had no customers there, no other cars, no commitments, and I could just enjoy driving a car again, and that sort of embedded into me where I would like for that to happen again one day, but I'm sure it's going to be a long way down the track when um, I'm old and... Um, we'll just turn up to have some fun, old and slow. All right. Well, we hope that it happens sooner rather than later, but uh, we're just about done here on the podcast, but we always finish up with a segment. It's called Checkered Flag Choices, and it's basically speed dating by another name. And so the way it works is basically I ask you five questions and you answer them. So question number one, what is your favourite holiday destination? Bali. Care to elaborate? No, I just like it. It's uh, it's good. It's hot weather. It, uh, good food. Good people. Relaxing. Um, just enjoy it. It's a good time to wind down. Name three. Let's say between three and five people who you would invite to dinner. Give me a rocket in. Richard Branson. I'm gonna go with Jim Jeffries. Nice. What? And, and actually, this will be quite a tough question because you have had the opportunity to drive some very cool cars, but what's your dream car? To drive, as in race car? Race car or road car? What is the dream car that you aspire to own? Well, I don't know about... The dream car to drive would have to be a, a Formula 1 car, for sure. Um, dream car to own... Uh, it's, it's tough again. Like, I'm really not into road cars, like, at all. I enjoy driving ship boxes around, to be honest. But um, um, some a nice Mercedes or a McLaren, actually, that'd be nice. Very nice. What's the best advice that you've been given about motorsport? Work hard and be careful, for sure. Um, you know, be be good to those that help you. Um, you really need to work hard in this industry. Um, there's a lot of hours in, involved. And, um, yeah, be careful. It's a, it's a tough old industry. And final question, who is the racing driver that you respect the most? I don't know. I, I respect a lot of drivers, to be honest. Probably if he, probably Craig Lowndes would have to be back when he was racing. Yeah, I respect Craig. What is it that you most respect about him? Uh, he helped me a little bit when I raced back in 04 as well. And he was just a kind, a kind guy. Um, and just, yeah, I think he's just a respectful person. Hard racer, very hard racer. Awesome stuff. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the Check and Flag Chat Podcast, Garth. It's been a pleasure to get your insights into your time in the motorsport industry and everything that you've achieved throughout your time in the sport. And I think there's a lot of people who will go away with a, a much better understanding of exactly what you do, what you've done, and uh, the things that you continue to contribute to the motorsport industry. So thank you. Appreciate it, Lockie. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview. It's been fun. 
It was great to catch up with Garth Walden and hear about his motorsport history, as well as having a closer look at GWR Australia's vehicle preparation facilities. We have some more episodes of Check and Flag Chat in the pipeline, but if you'd like us to interview a particular guest, let us know via the Check and Flag Nadia social channels. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.